If you will take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Our text for today is 11 through 27, verses 11 through 27. Making your way there again, I do want to encourage you, if you haven't met Deanna personally, to get to know her, invite her over for dinner, take her out for coffee. I'm sure she would uh, be receptive of any of those opportunities to get to know her in the ministry a little bit more so that you can not only be praying for her, but even possibly be one of her supporters in a way that the Lord may lead you to do so. And so again, thank you, Deanna, for sharing with us for encouraging us in the work there at St. Mary's. Our text again today will be Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. We come to another parable here in the Gospel of Luke, another important moment of teaching that Jesus shares with his disciples and those gathered around him, likely still at the table with Zacchaeus at his house um, as he shares this parable. So I want to read from Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank at my coming? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have in your word this morning. And we ask that you would teach us from this parable, that you would help us to understand a life to be lived out in faithful stewardship, accountable to you. So Lord, would you, by your word, inform us and shape our affections and shape our lives in a way that would bring much glory and honor to your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we have the last recorded interaction and teaching that Jesus has with his disciples before entering Jerusalem. So this is prior to him going into the city. And we need to understand the greater context. We need to understand that this teaching, that this parable comes after all that Jesus had done, after the, all that the disciples had seen. Just think about through the Gospel of Luke thus far. All of the miracles, all of the teachings, everything that the disciples had encountered with Jesus, crowds increasing. We know he's heading into Jerusalem. At the very same time, an intense hatred of Jesus continues to increase. So we have on one hand these messianic expectations. They were likely at an all-time high. And the disciples were convinced, we're told in verse 11, 
that they were about to see the fullness of the kingdom of God come and arrive in Jerusalem at this moment. Something great was about to happen. We know as we read on into this parable that it wasn't the fullness of the kingdom of God that was about to unfold. In fact, the king was about to die, be raised, and depart. And the disciples needed to be prepared how to face that reality, how to face this suffering that their leader would endure and his departure, what that meant for them. They needed to be prepared what life would look like for them in light of his death and Jesus' death in light of his resurrection and ascension back into heaven. What we find here is that Jesus understands that their loyalty to him was about to be tested and they needed to be ready. They were preparing for a big party. The kingdom of God's about to come. But Jesus was preparing them for a significant test. The question that this parable really causes us to ask is how are we as followers of Jesus to go about daily life in light of his ascension into heaven and his promised return and the promise of the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus gives us instruction through this parable. In fact, he uses the parable of the 10 minas to illustrate how his followers are to live their lives until he returns again and brings the fullness of the kingdom with him. I want us to walk through this text and observe three observations that we find here regarding Jesus' instruction to his disciples about what it, meant, what it means to follow them in light of his departure. Three things that we observe. Number one, the first thing that we observe from this passage is a, a much needed correction. You see that in verses 11 and 12, don't you? As the disciples heard these things, what are these things? Well, just go back into the earlier part of the chapter. The fact that Jesus had just engaged Zacchaeus, this tax collector, a man that would have been detested and despised, a man who would have been seen as evil and sinful. The fact that he's at his house, the fact that he's pronouncing that salvation has come to this house, the fact that he is also a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. As, as the disciples hear all of these things, and remember, they, they're hearing this, they're seeing it in light of all that they've previously seen and in light of where they're heading to Jerusalem. And so they assume that the kingdom of God was about to unfold in full. It's what Jesus says, right, in verse 11, which is what the text tells us and informs us. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In their mind, they're heading to Jerusalem for inauguration day. But Jesus wants to calibrate their expectations. They were, in fact, not heading to Jerusalem for a royal inauguration. They were heading to Jerusalem for an execution. Their, their understanding of the kingdom was amiss. It was off, and they needed to be calibrated. Jesus needed to help them understand what they were about to encounter. So therefore, they needed some correction regarding their expectations and therefore their responsibilities in light of their expectations. So as Jesus begins the parable, he begins, in verse 12, he said, therefore, he begins the parable, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a, for himself a kingdom and then return. So as he's seeking to calibrate their expectations, he begins this parable with a nobleman heading into a far country to receive a kingdom. Well, as we'll see, he's obviously referring to his departure, which was soon to happen. But this was also connected likely to a historical event, as we'll see in just a moment, that, was happened, that had happened in that day and time as well. 
But what Jesus is doing here is he's preparing his disciples. That's the main point that we need to understand. Not only that, not only is he preparing his disciples for what to expect when they go into Jerusalem, he's preparing his disciples to understand what their responsibility was to be as they go into Jerusalem and in the days and months and years to follow. The, the implication from this parable regarding Jesus was that he was soon to depart and there would be a considerable amount of time before his return. That's the piece that they were missing. They were thinking, kingdom of God, inauguration day, this is gonna be great. We're gonna get on the front row. We're gonna be part of this great kingdom. Things are about to go down and we're gonna be right in the middle of it. In fact, quite the contrary at this point. Jesus is helping his disciples live faithfully in the present. He was more concerned with helping his followers be obedient to him and to live faithfully in light of the calling that they had as disciples in the present than he was with detailing at this point how in fact the kingdom of God would unfold. I mean, you could go to this parable, you, you, he could have told a different parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, then he could have gone into a parable about how the kingdom of God was to appear, when it would appear and how it would appear and all of those things, but he doesn't. Rather, he tells a parable to ground their expectations in present reality and what their lives were to be as followers in the present. Sometimes we are very much like these disciples, aren't we? Sometimes our thoughts and our expectations about the kingdom of God can be misguided and off track in a number of ways when it's coming, how it's going to unfold, what our responsibilities is, are, what our responsibilities are. Uh, and sometimes our expectations and our thoughts need to be confronted and tweaked and calibrated. One example, let me just give you one example. I think that just, just through my little slice of experience in the church, which is not much, but just my experience, the Western church's fixation on eschatology has often been a radical distraction. Now, I think we should study eschatology. Well, what in the world is eschatology? Study the end times. I think that we should study the end times. I think we should have a good understanding of the fact that Jesus is going to come again bodily, visibly, and he's going to bring the kingdom of God with him. But I think that the Western church in particular has often been radically distracted by eschatology thinking about the future while neglecting responsibility in the present. And so we have prophecy conferences, we have prophecy study Bibles, we have prophecy this and prophecy that and prophecy TV and prophecy that. Granted, the Bible speaks to these things, but brothers and sisters, if we get wrapped up in those things and so fixated on what's coming, we neglect what the present realities are and the present responsibilities that we have. I think we can often become too fixated on how things will unfold and when they will unfold, leading to Christ's return and the establishing of the fullness of the kingdom of God that we neglect faithfulness in the meantime. We're called to be faithful followers of Jesus, regardless of how near or how far the fullness of the kingdom is. We're called to live. We know earlier as we talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is a present reality, and yet it's a future reality. It's been inaugurated. The kingdom of God in, is not in its fullest sense. We know that. We know that the fullness of the kingdom when Jesus will reign and all, of, all will be made right and all of that is still future, but yet the reality of the kingdom is at play, is at hand, because Jesus has come. And so we begin to live in obedience to him as kingdom citizens in the present, knowing that we're doing so in light of our future promise. The disciples needed a correction, and I think oftentimes we need correcting, don't we? That our minds and our, our fixation on certain things can override present reality. But not only do we see a needed correction, we see a clarifying expectation, and that is really what we see in the first part of this parable, verses 13 through 19. So if 
They're supposing the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, and if Jesus is about to tell them it's really not, then what are they being called to do? And that's the, the bulk of what we want to focus on this morning. How are we to live in between Jesus' departure and his second coming? That's what he's about to tell them. He's about to say, I'm the nobleman and I'm about to go away. And there's gonna be a considerable amount of time before I come again. Therefore, here's what I'm calling you to do. They're about to be told that we also, by implication as his followers, in light of his second coming, need to understand the same thing. With this parable, we find three things that Jesus instructs his disciples in regarding this present faithfulness, this present stewardship with our lives that we are called to embrace, this clarifying expectation. First of all, we just look at the call to faithfulness, verse 13. The call to faithfulness. Calling 10 of his servants, this nobleman, right, this important person, this nobleman goes to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. He calls 10 of his servants together and gives them 10 minas. Now, this parable is similar to the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. There are some differences, and so you can see some differences between the two, but it's similar. You have some similar themes going on here. But here in this text, in Luke's account of these 10 minas, it begins with this nobleman calling 10 of his servants together before he goes to this country to receive a kingdom. Now, you may think that's a bit odd. Why would you go to another country to receive a kingdom for where you are? Well, it wasn't so odd in the Roman world. In fact, most believe Jesus is building off of a very well-known example in that day. When Archelaus, who was Herod's son, traveled to Rome in order to request the kingship of his father, the rule of his father, Herod had died. So Archelaus travels to Rome to ask permission from Rome to inherit that responsibility. And in fact, we know, if you keep reading the parable, that there was a bunch of people who were against that. They traveled to protest. He's given the kingdom, he comes back, and the rest is history. So it's very likely Jesus is taking a very well-known historical reality of that day and time. He builds off of that to tell this parable. So it wouldn't have been odd in the Roman world when important figures would travel to a distant country, maybe a country that ruled over their little area, to ask to secure rule over a particular region. So it would have been odd to, for the disciples to hear this. But while he is away, we know that each of the, while the nobleman goes away, each of the servants were given 10 minas, or excuse me, a mina, one to each of them. A mina was about three to four months worth of wages. And what they were to do, we're told in verse 13, Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So they are giving, they're, they're, they're given each a mina, three to four months worth of wages, and they're told, engage in business. The implication there is engage in business on my behalf until I return. In essence, what they were being called to do. They were to do business on behalf of the nobleman while he was away seeking this kingdom so that they could garner a profit for him from their labors. What Jesus is doing is he's setting up this parable with this image of servants being given responsibility on behalf of their master's business while he was away. They were to be stewards of this Nobleman and his business and the responsibilities that he had in that area. And they were, therefore were to carry on his work in his absence. He was instructing the disciples by way of this parable to do the same. There would be a time very soon when Jesus would depart, but his disciples were to carry on the work that Jesus had established in the world regarding his kingdom, regarding the gospel. They were to carry on that work until he returns. Simply put, Jesus through this parable is exhorting his disciples to be faithful stewards, not just with their money. This is not just a parable for stewardship, talking about our money. This is a parable about faithfulness with our lives. And he's saying to them, steward all that I've given you on my behalf until I return. 
This parable is an exhortation for us to see where our focus must be as followers of Jesus in the present day. We know from this parable that as he gives these minus to these servants, that we all as servants of King Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as his followers, we are all given responsibility. We all have work to do. We all have business to engage in, a stewardship of the king and the kingdom to steward until Jesus comes again. So when you think about this, as followers of Jesus today, we are these servants. All of us have been given, understand this is a parable, it's making a point. And so each little thing doesn't have an exact corresponding detail. And so each of us, we're not given a minor or three or four months worth of wages, but we know that all of us as the people of God, as Christians, have been given responsibility to steward on behalf of Christ. And this parable highlights that reality. This parable highlights our accountability and responsibility to serve on behalf of the kingdom of God. We all have work to do. Jesus doesn't just give a handful of people responsibility while he goes away and the rest of us just kind of kick back and watch things unfold. As his servants, we are called to steward his work in this world until he comes and establishes his kingdom in full. Each of us have been given a mina, and that mina may look very different. That mina may look different in seasons of your life, but all of us have been given a stewardship, a responsibility, a a joyful obligation to engage in business on behalf of King Jesus while he is away. Therefore, we are called to steward our time, our resources, our gifts, that our agenda every single day, not just on the Lord's day on Sundays, our agenda every single day we live is about the kingdom of God, about the gospel, advancing in this world and disciples being made. The call through this parable is a call to invest well in the cause of the kingdom. How well are we doing that? It's a call to faithfulness. But I want you to also see not just the call to faithfulness, I want you to see the challenge to faithfulness. Look at verse 14. This verse is often kind of overlooked when you hear this parable. Engage in business until I come, he says, and then verse 14, but his citizens hated him. So there are two groups of people that we're contrasting here. You had the servants of the noble, but now you have the citizens, the rest of the population of this area. His, the citizens hate him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's exactly what happened with Archelaus when he goes to Rome to ask for the kingdom. There's a delegation that goes, people saying, we don't want him over us. I think the way that that story goes is they give him reign and they come back and they kill all of those who, who protested, as you'll see this played out in this parable. But verse verse 14 raises an interesting addition to this parable because our attention is now drawn to these citizens who hated the nobleman. I mean, they hated him. They they had bumper stickers and t-shirts that said, not my nobleman, right? They didn't like the guy. They didn't want to follow him. They didn't want to live under his reign. They wanted nothing to do with him and they made it known, not only to him, but to everyone else. Now, let's get back to the servants. So you have vast majority of this population, all the citizens who hate the nobleman, and now you've been given as a servant of this nobleman this responsibility. This this nobleman departs on a journey and he leaves you as a servant to him the responsibility to carry out business on his behalf in the midst of a hostile environment. Sound familiar? Servants, I'm giving you this, I'm trusting you to conduct business on my behalf until I'm gone. Verse 14, but no, as you do that, people aren't going to like it. They hate me. Verse 
Likely there is a hint here to the Jewish rejection of Jesus and how the disciples would have to continue on amidst their constant threat and rejection. But as we see, these angry citizens are also representative of anyone who rejects Jesus and his authority. Those who do not follow Jesus, this is a good description. We do not want this man to reign over us. That is the cry of the heart of the rebellious, of the unrepentant, of the one who is not following Jesus. We do not want this man to reign over us. I do not want this man to reign over me. I'm happy ruling my own life. I'm happy with how things are going. I don't want to bow the knee to him and to embrace and to admit his authority over my life. That is the testimony of all who do not follow Jesus. That's the very state of the world in which we exist. That is the distinction, Christians, that we have, isn't it? We are called to serve the king, the nobleman, the one who is to receive our allegiance in the middle of a context of people who hate him and want nothing to do, do with his authority and reign. Friends, we are those servants who have been given a responsibility and calling to act on behalf of the Lord, to invest in his kingdom cause, to the gospel advance in the midst of a world that often wants nothing to do with him. What we're being called to here, friends, is this is not easy work. We, we are being called through this parable illustrating this reality. We, we are being called to publicly and openly declare our allegiance to King Jesus in a world, in a culture, in a society that rejects his reign. A few things to keep in mind regarding the challenge of faithfulness. Faithfulness is challenging. Anybody that tells you being faithful to Jesus is easy, they're not being faithful to Jesus. Serving Jesus faithfully in a lost world that rejects him is risky. You, you just use it example after example. Think of the college ministry, right? University. I mean, it's not easy ministry. Praise God, there are people there that God's at work in and that they're hungry and wanting more. And we, we pray for more of that. But oftentimes you find different soils there in, on campus. Oftentimes it's a hostile environment. You don't have to go to campus. You can go to, to the cubicle across the hall there at work, right? You could find people who reject him. Serving Jesus faithfully in a lost world requires risk, perseverance, courage, strength, Holy Spirit empowered stuff. Listen, you, th you think about the state of the world. We, we often talk about unreached people groups, don't we? How there are so many people groups in the world and how many of those people groups in the world are classified as unreached or unengaged. Brothers and sisters, the vast majority of unreached people groups in the world are unreached for a reason. They live in parts of the world where they are dominated by religions and false teachings that not only reject everything else except their own, they reject Christianity in a hostile way. That's why when Christians go to some of these people groups, they're persecuted. They're arrested, they suffer, some are killed. These people groups are unreached for a reason because they're rejecting the eternal reign of the true and living God and they've embraced a lie and they're giving themselves over to that lie despite the truth that's being brought to them, they reject that. And so it's hard to engage in certain places in the world, whether it's a campus or a cubicle or a country requires great risk, it requires wisdom, it requires effort. The, the challenge of faithfulness is real, friends. It's not easy to be a follower in this world because of the hostile environment in which we exist. Number three, I want you to see not only the challenge of faithfulness, but now I want you to see the characteristics of it in light of the challenges. We see that in verses 15 through 19. As we continue this parable, we know that the nobleman returns 
So verse 14, the citizens make it clear they don't want his reign. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So the picture, you see it, right? The nobleman goes away, he gets the kingdom, he comes back. He calls his servants to, together and, okay, let me hear, let, let's, let you give account now of what you've done with the monies I gave you. What, what does the business look like? By the way, this is a reminder to all of us that there's coming a day when you and I will stand before the king and we will give account of our lives to him. Right there, parable's implication of that, that there's coming a day when all of us will give account of what we've done, how we've stewarded our lives, how we've handled the responsibilities of the kingdom. Friends, it's easy to lose sight of that fact. The world, listen, the world will not carry on forever as it is. There, there's coming a day when the nobleman will return with his kingdom in hand and his servants will be gathered and they will give account for what they've done in the meantime. That includes every single one of you and me in this room. Christ will return and we will give account. But let's look at this parable. As we are allowed to kind of see into at least three of these servants, we know there were 10, but now three, that we're able to kind of get a front row seat and see what their response was, how they handled the minors they were given. And so in verses 16 through 19, we see the first two servants give report and they had invested their minor. They had, they, they had done good with it. One had made 10 more and another made five more. They'd made a profit. They'd done well with business. It wasn't the exact uh, return on the money. Each of them had a little bit different return and different response, but both of them had done well. The first one made 10, the second made five. And so there was indeed a return on the investment. But I want you to notice a few things about the first two servants' stewardship and obedience. A couple of characteristics here. Number one, it was marked by humility. Notice in the response of each of them actually, but look at verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. See it again in the second response, and even the third, even though the third's gonna go bad, we'll get to him in a moment. Your mina, Lord, your mina has made 10 more. He, he doesn't say my wise and hardworking efforts and great wisdom has done you a favor. Not, not at all. He says, Lord, your, your mina has done well. I just invested it. I just did what you told me to do. And, it, and it's, it's brought a return. He understood his responsibility. He understood that the nobleman had given him something that wasn't ultimately his. It belonged to the nobleman. He understood, both of these understood they'd been given, what, what they'd been given was to be put to good use, not for their own sake, but for the sake of their master. Friends, we would all do well understanding that the work we as followers of Jesus have been given to do in the meantime and between the first and second coming is, is ultimately his. We've been given a stewardship responsibility to carry on the work of the kingdom of God in the world and understand it's his kingdom. It's his gospel. It's his church that we're called to invest in and engage faithful service to the Lord will always be fueled by a humble understanding of who we're serving and what we're doing. Often we can become overly me-centered can't we, in ministry. My ministry, my church, my disciples, my this, my that. Be careful that you don't forget who you're serving and why and what you're serving. Humility marks the faithfulness of a, of a, of a wise steward. Number two, confidence. Despite the hostility from the majority in verse 14, the servants carried on faithfully knowing 
confidently that the nobleman would return despite the efforts to oppose him. And the nobleman does return with the kingdom secured in hand. Friends, it's a reminder to us just that little glimpse there of his return and their reaction to that and their, their stewardship. They, they could have caved to the society around them. They could have caved to the pressure, the hostility that was existing around them. But friends, it's a reminder to us that no matter how hard the world may be, no matter how difficult or challenging ministry can become, it's all worth it because Jesus is coming again with his kingdom intact. He's going to come again. His kingdom will be established. Sometimes we look around at this world and we wonder, I sure hope so, right? We, we wonder sometimes. But brothers and sisters, if you're gonna serve faithfully in the cause of the kingdom, you are going to have to serve not just with humility, but with confidence that King Jesus is coming again and that the kingdom will be established. That should fuel our obedience, right? It should fuel our responsibility in the world, no matter how risky, no matter how challenging, no matter how difficult, no matter how much we're persecuted, no matter how much we're hated, we're called to steward with confidence because Jesus said, I'm coming again. Serve with confidence. Number three, commendation. First two servants are commended for their wise investment. The first one, we're told in verse 17, he says to him, well done, good servant. Well done, good servant. Friends, it's just a little snapshot there that reminds us that our faithfulness draws the delight of Christ. Isn't that encouraging? That your faithfulness is not in vain? that your obedience to the king, that your faithfulness to steward your life and, for the, and, and the gospel in this world is not in vain, that your faithfulness, despite what everybody else around you may be saying about you or to you, or now, no matter how hard it is, your faithfulness draws the delight of Christ. He's pleased with you when you serve him well. Not only that, his pleasure results in granting more responsibility. Later on, we see Jesus state this principle. He illustrates here in the parable that faithfulness in a little will result in more responsibility. You do well with this, I'll give you more. He trusts you, you, know, he, you build, that, you build that, that, that relationship with them. Now, perhaps this, this parable is pointing us toward, when, when, when you see that, first and second, because you've been faithful in a very little, you should have authority over 10 cities, and the second one over five cities. Perhaps that's pointing us to the future when the kingdom is fully realized, when we are able then to participate and enjoy the reign of Christ, and we participate in some way with that reign of Christ in the fullness of the kingdom. We know we've been told that we will. In the judgment, the faithfulness we've exhibited here will be rewarded with further responsibility in the fullness of the kingdom. This parable teaches us that. This parable teaches us that Jesus will reward the faithfulness of his people. He sees faithfulness. Listen, he sees your faithfulness even when others don't or when, when, when others aren't acknowledging it. Jesus sees it. He delights in it. He will reward it. Be encouraged in that. So you see a commendation. These are the characteristics of faithfulness, but then I want you to see finally and lastly and briefly, we call a sobering application. You've seen the needed correction the disciples had. You've seen a clarifying expectation of what faithfulness is about, and now you see the sobering application through the lens of the third servant. The third servant is called to account here, and things don't go so well with him. See in verse 20, then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. And the reason he gives is because he's afraid, he says, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So when, he called, when he's called to give account, all he can produce is the original mina he had been given. He'd wrapped it up and put it away gained nothing. He did nothing with it. Two things we see about 
the unfaithful that are exhibited here. Number one, the unfaithful will be exposed. He's confronted there in this moment of accountability, a picture of the judgment, regarding his failure to produce more. And he says that, he's, that the reason behind that is because he's afraid. And he blames the nobleman. <laughs> Sound familiar? Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam being confronted there with the sin of Eve. God, the woman you gave me, right? Kind of blaming God for his sin. Similar here. I didn't do anything with it because you are a severe man. Friends, an important truth here that's revealed about the unfaithful servant, he claimed that the nobleman was severe and there, as a result, he, he's paralyzed by some sense of fear. He, he saw the nobleman as some strict administrator. If he earned money, the master would take it. If not, the master would hold him responsible. He just saw a lose-lose situation and so therefore he just didn't do anything. But the nobleman's response to the first two servants show and prove that that's just simply not true. He was not a severe man. He was a generous and kind man, blessing and rewarding those who were faithful, commending them, delighting in them, giving them more responsibility. The third servant clearly misjudged the nature of his master. It's A.W. Tozer that said, nothing twists or deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. This teaches us an important truth. Having a wrong view of authority, having a wrong view of God and his authority in particular will impact your service to him. This is why it's important to have a high view, a big view, a biblically informed view of who God is. It's, we're not the kind of people that are gonna say, well, to me, God is like this. Well, no, <laughs> God's revealed himself in his word for a reason. So when you misunderstand his nature, your obedience to him will wane and, and be derailed. Notice how this servant blamed his disobedience on the master and didn't take responsibility. It's a shame. Why did he do that? Because of his distorted view of authority. He, and because of this distorted view of authority, because he misjudged the nature of his master, he felt no sense of loyalty to him. He just tucked away the mina and just probably hoped the master wouldn't return. Maybe the citizens will have their way and, and he won't come back. How can I commit to serving a man who I see this way? Sad reality is some view God that way. Some even in the church, I think, have often have a misunderstanding of the nature and character of God. They see him as some harsh, judgmental, critical, severe being. This unfaithful man was exposed for the reality of his distorted view and where that led him. But then second, we see that the unfaithful not only will be exposed, but will be condemned. The master responds. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put money in the bank, my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Interestingly enough, the nobleman uses the servant's own words to condemn him, doesn't he? His excuse, the servant's excuse, actually becomes the grounds for his master's condemnation. In other words, if the servant believed this, this was, this was the, the nobleman saying, if you really believed I was a severe man, then why didn't you put my money in the, do something with it? If you really thought I'm that severe, then it would have only made sense for you to do something with my money because you know I'm severe. Only common sense would tell you that if you're in that kind of situation, right? He, he's not agreeing here that he's severe. He's just saying, if that's your belief, then why did, this, why did not this faulty belief, it was faulty, why did not this belief which is faulty lead you to action? 
So he's condemned with his own words. Shows just how irresponsible this servant was and how ridiculous his excuse was. His expressed view of the master is mistaken and his excuses there, at least his one excuse doesn't hold water. Part of the judgment included, we see later on, taking the remaining mina and giving it to the one who had 10. And that, that point here is, is that the most faithful servant gets additional reward and responsibility while the unfaithful is left with nothing but judgment. And that principle is expressed in verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he, was, what he has will be taken away. Friends, we will all face the Lord on judgment day. For the faithful, it will be a day of com- commendation, a day of reward. It's not a day to fear or dread. It's a day to anticipate because God will reward you with what you've done. But for the unfaithful, it will be a different story. There's often questions regarding this servant, debates even happening of whether or not was he saved and just useless, or was he really not a Christian? Again, I'm not sure that the parable is, is going to go that far, but I think that the implication here is that he's under judgment, right? He represents those who are associated with the master in the community in general, but their attitudes and actions demonstrate that they do not see God as gracious and that they haven't really trusted him. Therefore, they've not truly obeyed him. That's the perspective of this third servant. He doesn't see his master as kind and gracious. He may have thought he knew the master, but in the end, he demonstrates he had no real relationship with him. What a tragic place to be to be associated with Jesus, to think that there is some relationship with Jesus, but in the end, prove to to show that there was not genuine faith because you have nothing to show for your professed faith. Jesus goes one step further. Remember the citizens? Verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These citizens who had rejected the nobleman and his leadership, they too were judged. They too were condemned. They had openly rejected the master and wanted no part of his rule. They made that crystal clear with their words. The third servant made that crystal clear with his actions. Therefore, they are brought to open shame. Friends, this is a graphic scene to teach us the terrible consequences of rebellion against God, rejecting his authority. There's no such thing as a neutral position with Jesus. You either trust in him and live for him and steward your life for him, or you reject him, either by open rebellion like the citizens or by faithless association like the third servant. Anyone who rejects the kingship of Jesus will be judged. So I'm saying that to you, friend. If if you are rejecting Jesus, you will be judged and you will be condemned, separated from God forever. And the only hope that you have is the same hope all of us have, is to understand that by nature we rebelled against a holy and righteous God, and yet in his kindness and grace, he sent the nobleman into the world, Jesus, lived an obedient life, died upon the cross, a sacrificial death in the place of sinners to take upon himself the judgment for our sin so that all who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him would be cleansed and forgiven and made a servant to serve the king. Friend, if you simply put your hope in Christ, the day of judgment will not be a difficult and dreaded day. It'll be a delightful day. A day in which you will see much rejoicing. Jesus is the generous master who calls his servants to loyalty and faithfulness. In his own time, he will return and we will give account. For some, it will be to joyful reward and further responsibility. For others, it will be disappointment and judgment.
as the king who rules over all, he demands and he deserves nothing but our steadfast loyalty and joyful responsibility to love and obey him with all that we are. Friends, King Jesus has gone to a far country to receive a kingdom and he will return with that kingdom in hand and he will establish it in full. Question is, how will he meet you on that day? What will your day of accountability look like before him? Will he find you faithful to the end? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word and parable and reminder. We know we need to hear and see. Oftentimes we can be distracted by the things of this world. We can be distracted by so many things and lose sight upon the fact that you have called us to be a people who are faithfully conducting business on your behalf for your glory and for your purposes until you return. Lord, would you forgive us when we have neglected that? Well, it may be that there are many in this room, some in this room, who have simply taken what you have given us and, and we've been tempted to just fold it up and put it away. We give excuses and some of those excuses are just misguided by deficient theology of who you are. Others just out of a sense of selfishness and laziness. God, would you forgive us and would you help us to see if that is where we are, that we would turn from that and that we would be a people who are renewed by your spirit even now that we might give ourselves in faithful devotion to you. Lord, confront us if that is who we are today. And Lord, for those who are sowing faithfully in this world, God, would you help spur them on by the presence of your spirit, encourage them, encourage them, Lord, to keep going. Lord, this is a difficult place to serve. It's a, it's a hard world. And yet we've been called to be faithful. God, would you help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.